0: All right, we are continuing a series that uh, Zach started last week called Gospel Human Flourishing. The baseline text that we're using for this series is in Jeremiah 29, verse 7. And I'm going to read it to you. It says this But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. We believe that because we are made in God's image, we are called into the world to cultivate and keep it, to make it better. We believe that the gospel compels us, and the gospel invites us to see humanity flourish. And so Zach considered work last week, and if you, uh, the dignity of work, and if you were not able to listen to that, I invite you to listen to that. We need to be reminded of the dignity of work, and he challenged us to turn from a me-centric view of work uh, and to partner with God instead, to partner with God to see our world flourish. It's good stuff there. And so we're going to continue looking at gospel human flourishing. And the way he presented it last week was like you're looking at a diamond. And you can see different angles of a diamond as you look at it. And so that diamond for us right now over these next several weeks is gospel human flourishing. And so we're going to be looking at different facets of gospel human flourishing. And so this week and the next, uh, the two weeks after, we're going to be talking about justice. Over the next three weeks, we want to allow Jesus and we want to allow the good book to guide us in what justice looks like. And so they're going to build on each other. Today, we're going to talk about what is biblical justice. We're going to talk about Jesus and justice next week. And then the following week, we're going to talk about how the early church responded to the call to engage justice. And so I want to speak to each of you for a moment, because I know that we are all in different places in this room. And so I want to speak, if you approach the subject of justice with concern, I see you. If you have felt frustrated by what the church hasn't done or hasn't said regarding justice, I see you. If you have been suspicious by some of the recent rhetoric and not sure what to do next, I see you. I know we are in uh, complex uh, spaces when it comes to our thoughts related to these things. And so again, my encouragement is that we allow the good book We allow Jesus to be our guide as chief above all. And so before I dive in, I want to sync up with regards to some expectations that I want to bring to the table to us as we talk about justice together. Several things I want to mention, and this will be free, that uh, expectations that aren't agreed upon lead to fights. You know what I'm saying? Like if you have a roommate, if you're married, if you have expectations of somebody, you never communicate those expectations. What happens in that situation? Good stuff. No, right? And so mutual agreed upon expectations, clear communication regarding expectations helps guide a relationship forward. So I have a few expectations regarding these next few weeks and really every week, but specifically these next few weeks. The first expectation I have is that I expect that we want to follow Jesus and I expect that our, we want our allegiance to be submitting to him. My expectation is that we want this, the wisdom of the Bible to inform our view of justice. Not our opinions, not our preferences, not the podcasts we listen to, but the wisdom of the Bible to inform our lives. My expectation is that we want to be deliberate on what to care for and recognize that we will likely disagree on how what we care for takes place. Does that make sense? So we recognize that it's an expectation I have. I'm going to talk more about the what and less about the how regarding some things. Another expectation I have is I want the gospel to motivate us to care for our neighbor. I want the gospel to motivate us. I don't want fear to motivate us. I don't want guilt to motivate us. Guilt and fear may lead you to post a black tile, but it won't lead you to love and sacrifice for your neighbor. It may lead you, guilt and fear may lead you to a tweet to tweet something, but it won't lead you to do something. The gospel motivates, truly. Grace motivates, and so that's an expectation I'm bringing to the table. Fear and guilt don't motivate, but the gospel, it motivates. Uh, another expectation I have is I want us to be prayerful during this time. I invite you To be prayerful during this time, I'm inviting you to pray big things for this series. What I mean by that is, I'm praying that God would awaken some desires that were in your heart in high school and college, but have now laid dormant because life has happened. And I'm praying that through this time, as we engage a conversation around justice over these next few weeks, that for some of you something would spark and that something that maybe was dormant for a while would be awakened. Again, I'm praying for that for you and for us. And lastly, an expectation I have. If you have questions uh, related to some of the things we talk about, reach out to me, Ernie at SojournOnline.org. And uh, some of those questions we might even engage on a Sunday morning. Some we might not. Some I might not have the answers for. Probably would be accurate. And so, uh, but that's that. Uh, And then the last thing I want to say, I got a long intro, but I'm not mad about it, um, is this. I want to submit some scriptures to us to be reading as we go through this together. There's some on this This should be on the screen here. You can just pull out your phone and take a picture of that. It's one of the few times I'll ever say that. Um, But if you want to do that just to have, again, what are we doing here? Are we just trying to get our own opinions? Well, I've never seen so many phones pulled out before. Um, That's neat. Um, And so we want the scripture to guide and define and shape who we are. And so allow these to guide and shape us as we seek to follow Jesus. If you want uh, more resources, a baseline kind of, there's so much out there, but a baseline recommendation that I would offer to you is Tim Keller's book, Generous Justice. There there might be a photo uh, right there. And so that's that's that if you're interested in learning a bit more about things related to justice. All right, that was the intro. We're going to be in Micah chapter 6 this morning. So Minor Prophets, um, towards the end, last few uh, prophets in the Old Testament. So go Malachi, move backwards. You'll get them soon enough. And so, this is an eighth. Uh, this is an eighth-century prophet, and so he's coming to the people of God, to Israel, and he's warning them of coming judgment. They have uh, v- uh, violated the law of God. They've rejected care for their neighbor, and they've used economic. Uh, and unjust economic practices to suppress others. And, and Micah comes to them saying, hey, judgment's coming. Assyria is coming and then Babylon after that because you have not obeyed the law of God. And so in Micah 6, we find a summary of what it means to follow God as the people of God. We might be familiar with Micah 6, 8, Um, we might not be familiar with Micah 6, 1 through 7. And so we're going to go Micah 6, 1 through 8 to get a better understanding of what's happening here. Micah 6, verse 1. Here we go. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and you enduring fountains of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O oh, my people, remember Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam of the son of Beor answered me. What happened from Shittim to uh, Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. Verse six. With what shall I come before the Lord? And bow myself before God on high. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? With calves a a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? With ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for transgression? The fruit of my body for sin of my soul? That's satire there. But then he says, he has told you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? But to do justice. To love kindness and to walk humbly before your God. So the Lord has an indictment against the people of Israel. And he says, remember how you were rescued. Remember that I rescued you. Remember all I've done for you. How are you now running from me, disobeying and violating the law of God? Remember how I rescued you from Pharaoh and Egypt and brought you out and cared for you. What have I done? done. And then the text changes in verse 6. And if we have a kind of a Western uh, compartmentalized individualistic view of following Jesus in faith, this won't make sense to us. But it says in verse uh, 6, with what shall I bring before the Lord? And bow myself before God on high. And then he begins to get a little bit sarcastic. Should I, should I kill a thousand calves? Should I, should I pour forth a, a river of oil? Should I do all of these spiritual practices? Would that be the thing that would cause God to be pleased with me? And the answer is no. The fruit of faith is a love for God and a care for humanity. See, the way you know your heart is right by grace is that you care for those in need. The evidence of our faith is how we treat each other, extending the grace that we have been given from God. And so he challenges them with the culmination of this text in 6.8. Um, and there's three commands that in some ways are baseline values for gospel human flourishing. In no particular order. It says, do justice, love kindness, walk humbly before your God. Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly before your God. That, that word kindness could also be translated more dominantly. It's, in the Old Testament, is translated as mercy. So you could say love kindness or love mercy. So if we want to be a people who seek gospel, human flourishing, we must be a people who do justice, who love kindness, love mercy, and walk humbly before our God. I have to confess that I did not grow up in a tradition that taught me about justice. I don't know, maybe, maybe we're similar way, but maybe we're not, but justice was kind of seen in a very narrow lens. It was kind of a, a global lens. And so there was a well that needed to be dug. And so we did justice. And we went and dug a well. Or there was a house that needed to be built for somebody. And so we did justice. And we globally left, went on an airplane, traveled somewhere far away, did justice, kind of checked that box off and came back. But from my experience, from my vantage point, from what I gathered growing up, is that we majored on global endeavors, but neglected local care of our neighbor and our city as a church. And I found that I, and maybe we would do well to learn about God's care for justice. Which leads me to my first point, which would be defining biblical justice. Justice means different things to different people. And if we've gathered anything from this last year, and we hopefully have gathered a lot of things, we we, uh, probably gather that there's different definitions of justice, depending upon who you follow, who you listen to, what you watch, you're going to get a variety of definitions of justice. But what does the Bible tell us about justice? You know, on the one hand, there's a lot in the Bible about God's care for the poor, God's care for the oppressed, God's care for the vulnerable. There are plenty of warning against, warnings against treating the helpless uh, with cruelty and disrespect. On the one hand, there's an awful lot of that. And then on the other hand, and we'll look at that in the coming weeks, on the other hand, justice as a biblical category is not synonymous with anything and everything that um, uh, we feel would be good for the world. That we can't just throw the label of justice on anything and everything that we want to. Conservative and progressive secularism is diluting the importance of justice by making everything they care about a justice issue. And so it's no, we don't have a grid for what true justice is if everything is not labeled as a justice issue. But the good book says humans are set apart in the image of God. The good book tells us that in the garden, harmony and order existed in shalom, and peace, we're going to talk about shalom in several weeks from now, but in shalom, harmony and order existed. In shalom, it was shattered in the fracture. In the fracture, in the fall, shalom was shattered and injustice entered. This is the biblical perspective that there was a day where there was only but justice, there was only but care for one another. And then in the fracture and in the fall, separation. Happen and injustice entered. And now we have a world where we have both oppressed and oppressors. And we always will have oppressed and oppressors. There's no utopia in this world where we won't not have that. Because of sin, we redefine good and evil to our own advantage at the expense of others. That's the result of the fall. And so, a few definitions of biblical justice I'll give you three, I could give you 30. Uh, That would be solid, but these are are three for you. Kevin DeYoung, uh, he writes, doing justice means following the rule of law, showing impartiality, paying what you promised, not stealing, not swindling, not taking bribes, and not taking advantage of the weak because they are too uninformed or unconnected to stop you. Karen Ellis, who's a professor at RTS, she says, when we pursue justice, we proclaim the kingdom of God on earth, his intentions in the world as he intended it to be making wrongs right, holding the unjust accountable, seeing to it that the wronged are made whole. When we pursue biblical justice, we communicate that there is a better day to come. And Tim Keller adds, Biblical justice is characterized by radical generosity, universal equality, life-changing advocacy, and uh, asymmetrical responsibility. And so we got two complementary Hebrew words that we need to understand to understand the, the depth of justice. This is going to be more of a teaching time in parts, but I think it's helpful. It's baseline. We've got to get on the same page before we make any progress with conversations. And so two complementary Hebrew words to know. First would be mercy and justice. Uh, kased is the Hebrew word for Mercy, a mishpat is the Hebrew word for justice. And so mercy fundamentally means God's unconditional grace and compassion. Mercy means a focus and attitude behind the action. It's an attitude. It's a, a heart posture uh, of unconditional grace and compassion. That's mercy. That's uh, kased. But then justice, mishpat, is the emphasis isn't on the heart. It isn't on the attitude. The emphasis on justice, mishpat, which is used over 200 times in the Hebrew Old Testament, is an emphasis on action. Mercy is an emphasis on attitude. Justice is an emphasis on action. And they complement each other. The the mercy is designed to shape our hearts so that we can go forth with action, not with guilt, not with fear, but with mercy by the grace of God, by the gospel. Justice is acquitting or punishing every person on the merits of a wrong, regardless of social or racial status. Same wrong must equal same punishment. That's justice, biblical justice, is same wrong must equal same punishment. When justice is used in the Bible, it regularly is focused on four groups of people. Uh, Someone called it, Nicholas uh called it, N- Nicholas, uh, uh, called it uh, don't tell him that I messed up, it's not last name there, but, uh, but called it the quartet of the vulnerable. The four aspects of the vulnerable. This is what justice is emphasized. Uh, the biblical justice emphasizes the, the quartet of the vulnerable. And that would equal the widows, the orphans, the immigrants and the poor. This would make up the, the biblical understanding of the quartet of the vulnerable. And so, modernize this quartet looks like immigrants being synonymous with refugees. The poor including the homeless. Widows equaling single parents and elderly. The unborn could be included with orphans. If we define orphans as powerless children with no one to defend them. And so this is what we're looking at here. So we can't compartmentalize justice to our liking. We're going to find this in the coming weeks, specifically as we talk about it in the the early church. The early church was not defined by partisan politics. They allowed themselves to be different, distinct. And so when we look at justice, it's necessary to submit to all of what the scripture talks about in regards to the quartet of the vulnerable and not just our compartmentalized view that is to our liking. See, God loves and defends those with the least economic and social power. Throughout the Bible, we find this. And therefore, so should we. That is what it means to do justice, to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God. To walk with God means that we must do justice out of a motivation of mercy, not guilt, not fear, gospel human flourishing. I feel like the best way to kind of drill in a little bit here, I'm probably going to go long today, but I'm okay again with that. I'm kind of always okay with that. Again, we have so much history where I preach for like six minutes at the Lutheran Church, and so I feel really good about going long every once in a while. But I have a a six-minute video that I felt I could summarize a, a good bit of what we're talking about here when it comes to a vision Of biblical justice. There's a a resource called Bible Project that we use on the regular, and they did a a video that kind of summarized this, and I would love to watch it with you. Let's watch it.
1: If you were a praying mantis, it would be socially acceptable to devour your mate.
2: And if you're a honey badger, you have no regard for other animals. You don't care.
1: If you're a panda with twins, It's normal to abandon one to take care of the other.
2: But if humans do any of these things, we would call it wrong, unfair, or unjust. Yeah, why is that? Why do humans care so much about justice? Well, the Bible has a fascinating response to that question. On page one, humans are set apart from all other creatures as the image of God. Yeah, God's representatives who rule the world by his definition of good and evil. And this identity, it's the bedrock of the Bible's view of justice. All humans are equal before God and have the right to be treated with dignity and fairness no matter who you are. And that would be nice if we all did that, but we know how the world really works. And the Bible addresses that too. It shows how we are constantly redefining good and evil to our own advantage at the expense of others. Yeah,
1: self-preservation. And the weaker someone is, the easier it is to take advantage of them.
2: And so in the biblical story, we see this happening on a personal level, but also in families and then in communities and in whole civilizations that create injustice, especially towards the vulnerable. But the story doesn't end there. Out of this whole mess, God chose a man named Abraham to start a new kind of family. Specifically, Abraham was to teach his family to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice.
1: Doing righteousness, that's a Bible word I don't really use. But what comes to mind is
2: being a good person. But what does that even mean, being good? The biblical Hebrew word for righteousness is tzedakah, and it's more specific. It's an ethical standard that refers to right relationships between people. It's about treating others as the image of God. With the God-given dignity they deserve. And this word justice, it's the Hebrew word mishpat. It can refer to retributive justice. Like if I steal something, I pay the consequences. Exactly. Yet most often in the Bible, mishpat refers to restorative justice. It means going a step further, actually seeking out vulnerable people who are being taken advantage of and helping them. Yeah, some people call this charity. But mishpat involves way more. It means taking steps to advocate for the vulnerable and changing social structures to prevent injustice. So justice
1: and righteousness are about a radical, selfless way of life.
2: Yeah, and you find this idea all over the Bible. Like here, in the book of Proverbs, what does it mean to bring about just righteousness? Open your mouth for those who can't speak for themselves. And what do these words mean for the prophets, like Jeremiah? Rescue
1: the disadvantaged and don't tolerate oppression or violence against the immigrant, the orphan, and the widow. And like here, look in the book of Psalms. The Lord God upholds justice for the oppressed, gives food to the hungry, and sets the prisoner free.
2: But he thwarts the way of the wicked. Whoa, he thwarts the wicked? Yeah, in Hebrew, the word wicked is rasha. It means guilty or in the wrong. It refers to someone who mistreats another human, ignoring their dignity as an image of God.
1: So justice and righteousness is a big deal to God.
2: Yes, it's what Abraham's family, the Israelites, were to be all about. They ended up, as immigrant slaves, being oppressed unjustly in Egypt. And so God confronted Egypt's evil, declaring them to be rasha, guilty of injustice. And so he rescued Israel. But the tragic irony of the Old Testament story is that these redeemed people went on to commit the same acts of injustice against the vulnerable. And so God sent prophets who declared Israel guilty. But they weren't the only ones. There's injustice everywhere. Yeah, some people actively perpetrate injustice. Others receive benefits or privileges from unjust social structures they take for granted. And sadly, history has shown that when the oppressed gain power, they often become oppressors themselves.
1: So we all participate in
2: injustice, actively or passively, even unintentionally. We're all the guilty ones. And so this is the surprising message of the biblical story. God's response to humanity's legacy of injustice is to give us a gift, the life of Jesus. He did righteousness and justice, and yet, He died on behalf of the guilty but then God declared Jesus to be the righteous one when he rose from the dead and so now Jesus offers his life to the guilty so that they too can be declared righteous before God not because of anything they've done but because of what Jesus did for them
1: the earliest followers of Jesus experienced this righteousness from God not just as a new status but as a power that changed their lives and compelled them to act in surprising new ways.
2: Yeah, if God declared someone righteous when they didn't deserve it, the only reasonable response is to go and seek righteousness and justice for others.
1: This is a radical way of life, and it's not always convenient or easy.
2: It's courageously making other people's problems my problems. This is what Jesus meant by loving your neighbor as yourself. It's about a lifetime commitment fueled by the words of the ancient prophet Micah. God has told you, humans, what is good and what the Lord requires of you is to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God.
0: Well, yeah, you can clap for them. Yeah. Zach, will you email them? Zach, will you email them, let them know they got to clap? Thanks so much. Um, So the gospel compels us to a radical, selfless way of life. As we've been given much, we then extend it to another. Again, to do justice is to represent God's heart by making wrongs right, holding the unjust accountable, and seeing to it that the wronged are made whole, communicating that there is a better day to come. That's biblical justice. Okay, second point, and then last one, is uh, that God provided a vision for a just society in the Old Testament. I want to look at it, and I want us to see God's heart in it. Um, in the Old Testament, we see a vision for a just society. Uh, the Old Testament is, isn't voided when Jesus came. We don't have to like, ignore the first you know, 37 books of the Old Testament uh, to just get into the good stuff of the New Testament. The Old Testament is, i uh, uh, say it like this, Jesus changes the way in which Christians exhibit their holiness and offer their sacrifices, yet the basic principles remain the same. And so in the Old Testament, there are three laws, uh, three types of law. There are ceremonial laws, there are moral laws, and there are civil laws. I'm going to focus on the civil aspect. This has changed a lot because in their day, God was the ruler. It was a theocratic rulership. We don't have that anymore. So things are different, but we can still learn some. And the New Testament, Christians lived uh, and now live in international communities And every nation under many different governments that we don't have our allegiance in, but we do respect. So baseline: as Israel was a community of justice, so the church is to reflect that same concern for the poor. And in Deuteronomy 15, we we hear about a just a vision for a just society. I'm not for the sake of time gonna be able to read all of these things to you, but I will give you a quick recap of uh, Deuteronomy 15. So as you read through De- Deuteronomy 15, you see this sabbatical year laid out. And in the first several verses, you find that there, uh, God says two things through Moses. He says, uh, first, there, there should be no poor among you. But then he also says that there will always be poor among you. So he's like, Moses, hello, what are you doing here? But there's not a contradiction at all. He's actually giving a vision, but also laying out a bit more. See, God provided this law called release, that every seven years, debts were forgiven. This is in the fabric of the Old Testament law. That every seven years, that uh, the debts were to be forgiven. It was called the law of release or the Shemitah. Um, and then you read on in De- Deuteronomy 15, we see that uh, there's a challenge to the people of God to open their hands to get the, their poor neighbors out of poverty. There's this invitation if you are to obey the law of god then you will actually ultimately be able to pull people out of the cycle of poverty see god has such a concern for the poor that he gave a host of laws that if practiced would virtually eliminate permanent a permanent underclass and we see this echoed in leviticus 25 it's the year of Jubilee. It's, every, uh, it's the 49th year. It's seven Sabbath years. Every 49th year, something happened in the Hebrew law. And that year, not only were debts forgiven, but the land was to go back to the way it was designed to be when God allotted the tribes of Israel to their specific places. So over a 50-year period, some families would flourish. Some families would suffer. Some would do really well over this 49, 50-year period, and some would struggle. And at that 49th year, on average, every person or family had at least one chance in a lifetime to start afresh, regardless of their debt. See, if Israel kept the law of God with all of their hearts, there would have been no permanent long-term poverty. See, we're not theocratic and I'm not saying that we should be, but what I am saying is that we can learn from God's heart here. The fact that he put such an emphasis of creating laws in that time, that shows that he cares so much for the quartet of the vulnerable. The Bible doesn't say how this should be carried out. You know, we disagree on the how. I know we, even in this room, we disagree on the how. For some, uh, liberals would say that the root cause is social forces beyond the control of the poor racial prejudice, economic deprivation, joblessness, other inequities. But then conservatives would say the root cause is the breakdown of the family, the loss of character qualities such as self-control and discipline. And the reality is it's a little bit of both. It's a little bit of this and it's a little bit of that. For example, a person raised in a racial or economic ghetto would be a factor in their life. And then that person maybe has a poor health care opportunity. That's another factor. Maybe that person didn't have a father figure in their life to guide them. That's another factor. And then that person maybe weren't, wasn't taught certain habits that would help them flourish. It's another factor. there's multiple factors that are playing into the discussion. You know in our country, the weak educational system that society provides in lower-income communities sets them up for failure. Adding crime and wrongdoing and oppression and redlining, it locks people in the pit of poverty. See, just as God's concern for justice permeated the people of Israel, it should also permeate our own lives. Again, to do justice is to represent God's heart, making wrongs right, holding the unjust accountable, seeing to it that the wrong are made whole. You know, this matters in our obedience to God. It matters in our love for our neighbor, and we will have no voice as the church if we are not engaging the marginalized and the quartet of the vulnerable, the widows, the orphans, the immigrants, and the poor. So as we enter into these next few weeks together, this is kind of the primer. I'm going to kind of leave it there and just give you content and knowing that in the next few weeks we're going to talk a little more detail about how Jesus responded and cared and allowed the kingdom of God to exude through his life. We're going to look at the early church and how they didn't submit to a specific political structure. They became completely distinct and they cared deeply for people. Man, we want to be that. But I feel as we begin this time talking about justice that we just need to pray. Ask God to soften our hearts. Like we can, we can already have our dukes up, and we can already feel as we approach this kind of our fist up, and it's like let's just put our guard down, and allow the Spirit to minister to us. I want to be a people who follow Jesus. I don't want to be someone who just follows the person that I follow on Twitter or the podcast I listen to. I want to follow Jesus, and I want us to follow Jesus. And if we're off in one area, to turn our hearts. If we're off in another area to turn our hearts that we would be a people who follow Jesus. Again, some of us uh, suppress this feeling because life has happened. I believe that God may be awakening dreams in our hearts again. And so I would love to just pray before we go into the time of confession and communion, to just pray, to just ask God to stir our hearts afresh, that if he cares for this, God, would you let our hearts care for this? If this is something that's on your heart, if this is something that that you say that you are a defender of the weak, that you are a father of the fatherless, God, let us be a people, too, that are like that. So I would love to just take the next, as Trevor comes up, to take the next minute or two, let's just pray for our community, let's pray for our lives, let's pray for our hearts, and then we'll transition into a time of confession. Sound good? All right, let's do it. As we enter into a time of confession, this is a space that we offer to turn our hearts to God. I know that all of us could find um, areas in our heart, even in this conversation, that we need to turn to God with and release into his hands. And so I want to pray a prayer with you, a prayer of confession, um, as we enter into this next minute of confession. Um, and again, just praying that God would soften our hearts and that we would be open to what he says to us through the good book. Um, If you want to mind, let's pray this together. It should be on the screen. Eternal God, our judge and redeemer, we confess that we have tried to hide from you for we have done wrong. We've lived for ourselves and apart from you. We've turned from our neighbors and refused to bear the burdens of others. We've ignored the pain of the world and passed by the hungry, the poor, and the oppressed. In your great mercy, forgive our sins and free us from selfishness, that we may choose your will and obey your commandments through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.